Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the wonderful information that you have given us in the epistles of John. Tonight we're looking at the first epistle of John, and we are so thankful that you have given us the material, the ways that we can safeguard ourselves, the way that we can identify heresy, the way that we can make sure that we and our teachers are following you and that we were not, will not be led astray by false teachers, by heretics. We thank you for this. We thank you for the security and the safety that you provide us in your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Tonight, we're going to be looking at the first epistle of John. I have entitled it, Jesus Christ, Our Life. Though 1 John doesn't mention its author, it has long been thought that the apostle wrote this letter. All five compositions attributed to John, that would be his gospel, his three epistles, and the book of Revelation. All of them have a similar language, phrases, and themes. In fact, John has been nicknamed the Apostle of Love due to the frequent use of the word love in his works. John was the last of the 12 apostles to die sometime between AD 98 and 100. And later on when I talk about some of the words that John uses, the vocabulary that John uses, you'll see that uh, the word love is used, uh, I believe, 44 times in this epistle. So John has earned that nickname quite well. John probably wrote this letter toward the end of his life after a long and fruitful ministry, possibly between AD 90 and 93. Now, some maintain that the letter was written by another John called John the Elder. They say that he was not an apostle, but may have been a, a follower of the apostle. They point out that according to Irenaeus, an early church father in the second century, Papias, who began his life in the first century, in his writings named another John who was not an apostle. They say that the letter was written later than John the apostle's time. In response to this claim, I would point out that first John was the youngest apostle and lived near the end of the first century. Uh, the apostles were elders or, or bishops. The three terms, uh, pastor, elder, and bishop are used interchangeably in the New Testament. The, the apostles were elders also by, by office and apostles by gift. So in other words, Apostles uh, were a, a subset of the elders. In other words, uh, all, not all elders were apostles, but, some, but all apostles were elders. So the, the, the gift of apostleship is a subset of all elders. So there were elders certainly who were not apostles, but just being called an elder doesn't make you not an apostle. Peter also called himself an elder. And we see that in, in 1 Peter. So there's nothing uh, that disqualifies you from being an elder by 
by virtue of the fact that you're an apostle. The existence of another New Testament author named John is doubtful, being based on a questionable statement by Papias. So it's not really even clear that that's what Papias was saying. So let's look at, first of all at the internal evidence. There is very good evidence from the text that John the Apostle was the writer. He was an eyewitness of Christ's life and teachings. The writer tells us that, which was one of the characteristics of an apostle, that he was an eyewitness. He wrote with the same style, using, for example, this is, by this, the same basic vocabulary, Father, Son, Spirit, Beginning, Word, Logos, you're familiar with that word, Paraclete, in the Gospel of John, the paraclete is the, the comforter, the Holy Spirit. In uh, First John, paraclete is the advocate, Jesus Christ. Belief, life, eternal love. I've mentioned how many times love is used in this epistle. Remain or abide. That's something that we see in the writings of John. Keep, commandment, true, know, beget, witness, light. He uses that word many times. Darkness, world, sin, and devil. Now, many of these words are used by other New Testament writers, but not to the extent that John does. And some of the words like logos and, and paraclete are, are unique to John's writings. And the same doctrine as the author of the fourth gospel. He emphasizes the same doctrinal points as in the other writings attributed to John. He wrote in the same style as John, who wrote the book of Revelation, which is known to be John the Apostle. Who else could write at this time with this authority, with this same style, the same doctrine, and have his book accepted without ever placing his name on it? Uh, I mentioned the, the vocabulary that John uses, and I just want to, as an aside, talk about how often he uses some of these words. But light is used in this epistle six times. Love is used 44 times. I mentioned that John is known as the apostle of love. And he certainly uses that word many times in this epistle. Life is used 15 times. No is used 37 times. And I'll talk shortly about the significance of that. Fellowship is used four times. No. That's a very important word, used 37 times in, in 1 John. Frequent use of the word know is especially significant. John wanted to contrast true knowledge with the false knowledge of the Gnostic heretics. The word Gnostic comes from the Greek gnosis, knowledge. The Gnostics consider themselves to be repositories of special secret knowledge. So John wanted to confront these Gnostics who claim to have so much knowledge, and he, he wanted to talk about the true knowledge that the followers of Jesus Christ have. The external evidence, the evidence from outside the epistle of John, verse John, that the apostle John wrote it is more than substantial. It was called an epistle of John from the earliest times by persons who would be in the best position to know who wrote it. It was accepted by a disciple of John named Polycarp. 
and it was accepted by the early fathers as the work of John. Other early writings claim it as a work of John, including the Shepherd of Hermas. That was a, another early Christian writing that was uh, widely disseminated. It wasn't, of course, uh, part of the, the, the canon of scripture, but it was, uh, it was widely used among Christians in the second century. And Irenaeus, I'll talk more about him and then, uh, uh, a second century church father. Later fathers accepted it too, such as Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Cyril of Jerusalem, Eusebius, the church historian, uh, Jerome, and Augustine, Augustine. They all considered, considered it to be an epistle of John the Apostle. The landmarks, remember our acronym flight, the, the facts, the landmarks, the itinerary, gospel, history, and travel tales. So the landmarks, the beloved apostle John wrote this letter to encourage believers to continue in their life of faith in Jesus Christ in accordance with the gospel they had been taught. John also warned his readers about false teachers and the ways of the world and proclaimed the preeminence of love, both God's love for us and our dutiful response to love one another. John wrote to define and defend the nature of Jesus Christ. That's a, a big part of this epistle, the, the true nature of Jesus Christ, to defend that against heretical teachings. Most notable among these was Gnosticism. I mentioned Gnosticism before. The teaching that anything physical or material is evil, that only the spiritual is good. By the way, you, you should be able to see a problem with that because clear back in the book of Genesis, the first chapter, when we read about God's creation, we see that over and over again, uh, God declares, God pronounces uh, everything was good in the physical world. So that certainly doesn't square with the Gnostic idea that only the spiritual is good and the physical or material is evil. This belief directly attacked the incarnation of Christ. Because if matter is evil, then Jesus could not be a perfect physical man. But John powerfully set forth Jesus as both, as both deity and humanity. There are many ways that we could outline the, the book of 1 John, but I'll just give you this. Uh, in it, we, we talk about advance and divine light. Walk in him. John is urging, urging Christians to walk in this divine light that has been given to us. Secondly, the attitude toward divine love. Dwell in him. And then thirdly, affinity with divine love, live in him. So we, we dwell in his love and that love should then extend outward from us to our brethren. Gospel. On the one hand, who could argue against or make small the immeasurable, unending wonder of God's grace, his unmerited favor 
shown to us on the cross. But on the other hand, we're not called to live however we want and just let grace do its thing. We have a responsibility to respond to grace by living according to God's truth and walking in the light. That becomes very significant in this epistle. There's no wiggle room there, according to John. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare it to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And later on, I will show you how that particular message, that if you're a Christian, you should walk in the light, how that contrasts with the teachings of the Gnostics. Following Jesus is countercultural because it means totally rejecting the world's way of thinking and living. Once you embrace the good news and receive the gift of grace and salvation in Christ, you then live it out in your thoughts, words, and deeds. As you learn God's truth and put it into practice, you will be transformed. Your life will become rooted in truth, joy, peace, and the assurance of everlasting life. The history now of First John. After spending three years of his life with Jesus, the Apostle John became a leader in the early church. It's believed that after Paul and Peter's executions around AD 66-67, John pastored the church in Ephesus, located along the Ionian coast in present-day Turkey. After the Romans destroyed the Jewish temple in AD 70, John may have been the leading disciple who helped keep the Christian community together. He also probably began to write his gospel account of Jesus around this time. In his later years, around AD 90, John wrote three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, to encourage Christians to keep the faith. He was exiled for this faith to Patmos, a rocky island about 45 miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey around A.D. 93. It was from Patmos that he wrote his final book, the book of Revelation. Hamilton's things that we can learn from this epistle, applications and implications. Following Jesus revolutionizes your relationships. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. John shared the gospel so that others might join him in fellowship. Fellowship is so much more than just hanging out over coffee and donuts. It is connecting with other Christians and going through life together, spurring one another on in spiritual growth. Following Jesus revolutionizes your holiness. These things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. When we meditate on the truth and then act on it, sin's grip on us will diminish while holiness grows. And when we do stumble, 
as we will, we can fall back on the grace of our great advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ. Following Jesus revolutionizes your joy. These things we write to you, that your joy may be full. Joy comes from receiving and embracing the message of the gospel, a sure sign that God's presence in your life is real. Knowing the authentic Jesus produces authentic fellowship with God and with other believers, and that in turn produces joy. Following Jesus revolutionizes your discernment. The anointing which you have received from him teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie. Hone your ability to discern good from evil and truth from lies by reading and learning the word. John called us to test the spirits, in essence, to take something we've heard or been taught and check it against the truth of scripture. Following Jesus revolutionizes your security. These things I have written unto you, that you may know that you have eternal life. Not just think it, kind of wonder if you do, but to know that you have eternal life. Over and over again in this letter, John wrote about what we as believers know, not what we think or feel, but what we're sure of. Having faith in Jesus isn't based on wishful thinking or flimsy hopes, but on the strong, confident assurance that through him we have eternal life. Addressees, to whom was this epistle addressed? The recipients of the letter were a group of mostly Greek-speaking Jewish churches with Gentiles as well. They were John's disciples, little children, he called them. He knew them well. They knew him well since they accepted his book without even his name on it. So he didn't have to didn't have to say this is from John. They knew it was from John. They were warned about idols, which was not a Jewish problem, but was part of a Greek part of Greek culture. After um, all of the years of Israel turning again and again to idolatry before they went into the Babylonian captivity, they finally learned their lessons. So idolatry was not a big uh, problem for the Jewish people after that. But of course, it was a continuing problem with the Greek converts to Christianity. They were being influenced by the heresy of docetism, which denied the humanity of Christ. And I'll talk more about that about both of these uh, heresies, Gnosticism and Docetism, which is a particular brand, particular flavor of Gnosticism. The readers were located in Asia, Asia Minor, modern Turkey, probably the same general area as the seven churches in Revelation that John wrote to later. The literary form of 1 John First John is, is not like the epistles of Paul. First John has no introduction, no authors' uh, greetings or 
conflicting salutations. If the statements I am writing and these things I have written to you show that originally 1 John was not an oral sermon, but a written composition. The affectionate, my dear children, by which the writer repeatedly addresses his audience, implies a limited circle of Christians with whom he is closely acquainted. According to early church tradition, John lived in Ephesus during his old age. Therefore, 1 John is probably a general letter written in sermonic style to Christians he came to know in Asia Minor, in the region around Ephesus. The purposes of 1 John, there are at least four reasons for John's writing the book that can be seen in the text. He wanted to urge them to continue in their fellowship with God and other believers. He desired to warn them against denial of Christ's humanity, a heresy called Docetism. He wished to exhort them not to sin and to remind them of the provision for sin made by Christ. He aimed to provide assurance of salvation for all believers. So now let's take a look at some of the heretics that John had to deal with. According to early tradition, John hurriedly left a public bath in Ephesus when he heard that the Gnostic leader Serinthus had entered. So Serinthus at that time was a prominent leader of the Gnostics. And this is a excerpt from Irenaeus against heresies. There are those who heard from him, the him refers to Polycarp, the disciple of John, that John, the Lord's disciple, going to bathe at Ephesus and perceiving Serinthus inside, rushed out of the bathhouse without bathing, exclaiming, let us flee, lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Serinthus, the enemy of truth, is inside. So he wanted to make it clear that he didn't have any anything in common with Serinthus, the leader of the Gnostics. Building on the notion that matter is inherently evil, Serinthus, this Gnostic leader, distinguished between an immaterial divine Christ spirit and a human Jesus with a physical body, and said that the Christ spirit came on the human Jesus right after Jesus' baptism and left just before the crucifixion. So there was this physical man, Jesus, with this Christ spirit just came upon him at his baptism and it left before the crucifixion. And amazingly, there, there are still people to this very day who are still promulgating that false doctrine. Some of them even the prominent academics Gnostics conceived of a Gnostic Redeemer who would deliver us from the prison of the flesh by imparting special secret knowledge. So as uh, poor human beings were all trapped inside this physical body and we can only escape from it by receiving this special secret knowledge from the Gnostics. Against this Serinthian doctrine, 
John stresses that it was the one person, Jesus Christ, who was crucified. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, his baptism. And we see that the, the baptism of Jesus was a very significant experience, a, a very significant milestone because at that baptism we, we find the father saying this is my beloved son but by the water and by the blood the blood which flowed from his pierced side so you see john is counteracting the, the false teachings of serenthus and the gnostics and saying it wasn't just in his baptism but it's also by the fact that he was crucified Jesus Christ was crucified. This Christ's spirit did not leave him before the crucifixion. We also want to talk about Docetism, which is a subset of, of Gnosticism. So working on this same presupposition that anything material and physical must necessarily be evil other Gnostics tried to avoid the incarnation and bodily death of Jesus Christ by saying that he only seemed to be human. That's where the, where the name docetism comes in, from the Greek word dakein, to seem. So he only seemed to be human. He wasn't really human, according to the teachings of docetism. Docetism asked the question, how can a spirit being Christ or the Son of God, good by definition, if he's Christ, he's the Son of God, he's good by definition, but how can he become a flesh which is evil by definition, by their definition? That just couldn't be. Although such a spirit being might temporarily assume a body of flesh, it could never become flesh. Therefore, John emphasizes the reality of the incarnation. What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed in our hands felt. So when you understand a little bit about the heresies that, G that uh, John was dealing with, you can understand a little better why he said what he said. Ironically, from, from the modern standpoint, the first Christological heresy attacked the humanity of Jesus rather than his deity. Today, the, the heresy that we have to deal with most often is, is attacks upon the deity of Jesus Christ. But back in, in the time of John, uh, the heretics were attacking the humanity of Jesus, denying his humanity rather than his deity. So with that in mind, you can understand why John placed so much emphasis on the fact that Jesus really was a flesh and blood human being. He wasn't a, a spirit being. The theme of 1 John. For early Christians, heresy in the church posed the problem of distinguishing orthodoxy from heterodoxy. Faithful ministers of the word from false teachers. The letter of 1 John formulates several criteria for testing the Christian profession of teachers and of yourself. 
So what are these criteria that John is talking about? To accomplish the purpose of strengthening his audience by combating heresy with truth, John discusses three criteria determining genuine Christian profession. If a person claims to be a Christian, these three criteria are to be used to examine whether he really is a Christian. First of all, there is righteous living, love for other believers, and believe in Jesus as the incarnate Christ. The Savior who actually did come in the flesh. Just as the criterion of belief in Jesus as the incarnate Christ is directed against the Christological errors of Gnostics, so also is the criterion of righteous conduct directed against the moral laxity of Gnostics. And the criterion of love toward fellow Christians directed against the haughty exclusivism of Gnostics. The, the Gnostics were the were those who uh, considered themselves elite Christians, higher order Christians, par excellence. The Gnostics prided themselves on their Christian freedom to do anything they pleased, including freedom to sin. So all of these three warnings, these three things that John was stressing related to this Gnostic heresy and Docetism. So one of the things that I find interesting about how the epistle of 1 John is arranged, he lists these three criteria in order. There's the criterion of righteous conduct, 1, 5 through 2, 6, then the criterion of mutual Christian love, 2, 7 through 17, and then the criterion of incarnational Christology, 2, 18 through 27. And then he repeats these same three criteria again. The criterion of righteous conduct, 228 through 310A, the criterion of mutual Christian love, 310B through 24A, the criterion of incarnational Christology, 324B through 46. So he goes through those three criteria and then he goes through them again. And then in, his, in the final cycle, he goes not through all three criteria, but just through the first two. The criterion of righteous conduct, 47 through 53, and the criterion of mutual Christian love, 54 through 21. So that is a, a good note for him to end the epistle on it with the uh, exhortation to practice mutual Christian love. The major textual issue in the book of First John is, of course, First John 5, 7. In the King James Version, First John 5, 7 reads, there are three who bear witness in heaven, 
the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. That's what we find in the King James Version. However, modern translations omit this verse. Why? Why do they do that? This verse has no support among the early Greek manuscripts. It is found in Latin manuscripts, but even there, in, in the early, uh, in the earliest uh, editions of the Latin Vulgate, for example, we don't find the verse. Its appearance in late Greek manuscripts is based on the fact that Erasmus, he was the one who assembled what has come to be known as the Textus Receptus, the New Testament Greek. Uh, remember that in most of the Greek manuscripts that we have, the early Greek manuscripts, we don't have the, the entire New Testament in one book. We have uh, individual books or collections of, of some of the books, but not all together. So Erasmus compiled a, an entire New Testament from, from the Greek manuscripts. And Erasmus was placed under ecclesiastical pressure by the Roman Catholic Church to include it in his Greek New Testament of 1522. Having omitted it in his two earlier editions of 1516 and 1519, because he could not find any Greek manuscripts that contained it. So there were Latin manuscripts that contained this verse, and Erasmus was under pressure from the Roman Catholic Church. They were asking him, well, why haven't you included this verse in your New Testament? And Erasmus answered simply, well, I, I can't find that verse in any of the early Greek manuscripts. Well, the Catholic Church uh, went to Erasmus and said, voila, here's, here's a Greek manuscript that has the has that verse in it. Well, in my opinion, they had just manufactured a Greek text that had that verse in it. There weren't any early Greek manuscripts that had it in it. So probably its inclusion in the Latin Bible results from a scribe incorporating a marginal comment, what we call a gloss, into the text as he copied the manuscript of 1 John. So this is something that happened quite often with copyists, scribes copying the, the New Testament, is that a scribe would see this marginal note and you think, oh, maybe that was uh, supposed to be in the text, in, in the uh, and an earlier copyist uh, forgot it, left it out, so he put it in the margin. So maybe I'd better put it back into the text. Well, the indications are that it wasn't originally in the text, that it was added later. So that's 1 John 5, 7. Including it in the text violates almost every rule of textual criticism. And if you want to know more about the rules of textual criticism, I would refer you back to a, a study that I did some time ago about the subject of textual criticism, in which I went through at length how scholars use the rules of textual criticism to determine what was 
the original text. Um, just as a reminder, it, it, a good way to, to remember the, these rules of textual criticism is bobsled. So the, the bob part of bobsled is the, um, the external evidence. So bob is best, oldest, broadest, the, the best text, the oldest text, and the broadest, in other words, the ones that are used most widely. If a text are just if a certain uh, variant of the text is just found in a particular geographical area, it's probably not really reliable. So best, oldest, broadest. And then the internal evidence, uh, the sled part of Bob's sled, um, the S is uh, the shortest, usually, not always, but usually the shortest text is the, the, the likely the more uh, reliable one. Uh, the L is most like the author, like the author. And that would especially apply with people like Paul, who wrote many books of the Bible. If you're uh, trying to decide which variant is most likely the correct one in one of Paul's epistles, well, think about what he says in his other epistles and, and see which one seems the most likely something that Paul would write. And then the E is, is uh, the text, the variant that best explains the others. That's probably the correct one. And then lastly, the D, difficult. Usually uh, the more difficult reading is, is the one that is chosen because you can see that the tendency would be to change a difficult reading to an easy one rather than to change an easy one to a difficult one. So that's why the more difficult reading is usually the correct one. Even the New King James Version, which generally retains the longer readings and disputed passages, for example, the longer ending of, of the Gospel of Mark or the uh, incident in John, Gospel of John, of the woman taken in adultery. The, the, King, the New King James usually retains these uh, disputed passages from the King James. But comments in the margin that this is a, first John 5, 7, this is a passage found in only four or five very late Greek manuscripts. So it's not found in the, in the early Greek manuscripts at all. All right, some of the alleged discrepancies and contradictions in 1 John. Doesn't John contradict himself when he asserts that Christians are without sin? John affirms in 3.9, whoever has been born of God does not sin. But in the first chapter, he insisted, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So how can we not sin if uh, we are deceiving ourselves and we say that we don't have sin? Nowhere does John claim that believers are without sin or never commit a sin. 1 John 3.9 is in the present continuous tense and should be translated 
whoever is born of God does not continually practice sin. Conversely, if a person habitually practices sin, he is not born of God. As James argued, true faith will produce good works. If a pig and a lamb fall into the mud, the pig wants to stay there, but the lamb wants to get out. Both a believer and an unbeliever can fall into the same sin, but a believer cannot stay in and feel comfortable. The believer may sin, but he does not want to continue in it. It must also be pointed out that to say one cannot sin can be understood in various ways. It might be understood as one cannot sin mortally, lose his life. That's possible. But uh, there are scriptures in the Bible that talk about Christians who did lose their lives through sinning. Uh, one of the most prominent ones is in 1 Corinthians 11, where it's talking about uh, people, Christians, who are observing the Lord's Supper improperly. And it talks about, as a result of that, um, some were sick and some had fallen asleep. In other words, they had died. So that's possible, but not very likely. One cannot sin absolutely, lose salvation. Well, that's impossible because we are told repeatedly in scripture that once a person is regenerated, they cannot lose their salvation. One cannot sin deliberately. Well, that's improbable because most, if not all, sin is willful and Christians sin. Christians do commit sins. And in those moments of weakness, when they do commit sins, they, they want to do it. One cannot sin habitually, present, progressive. This is the most probable meaning, since it is in the present tense, meaning continually. So it's not saying that Christians never sin. It just is just saying that they don't habitually sin. They don't sin and remain in a state of sin. They repent. Sin leading to death. What is the sin leading to death referred to in 1 John 5, 16? Is it forgivable? On the one hand, the scriptures speak of God's free and unconditional forgiveness to all who want it. On the other hand, Jesus spoke of an unpardonable sin that can never be forgiven. And John declares here that there is a sin leading to death. Bible commentators differ on just what John had in mind here. Some say he, he was referring to repeated sin, as in 3.9 that we just looked at. Others believe he was speaking of a grave sin, a really serious, egregious sin. Still others believe he had apostasy in mind. That was the sin leading to death. Well, whatever John envisioned, there is no reason that it could not refer to a sin so serious that it would eventuate in physical death. Paul mentioned that 
Corinthians had so participated in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner that some were sick and others were dead as a result. The priests Nadab and Abihu were killed for their disobedience to the Lord, as were Ananias and Sapphira for their sin. In Acts chapter 5, we read that account where Ananias and Sapphira had sold some property and they claimed that they had given all of the proceeds to the church and they hadn't actually, they had saved some for themselves. They were free to do that, of course, but they lied when they claimed that they had given all of the money to the church. And incidentally, uh, that's one of the indications in Scripture that the Holy Spirit is a person. Some would say that it is not the Holy Spirit is not a person, but in that context, remember the, the statement: uh, "Why have you lied against lied to the Holy Spirit?" Well, you can't lie to an impersonal force. You, you lie to a person. So it is entirely possible that John has some such serious sin in mind here, whereby the believer is turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So this sin leading to death is not losing your salvation. It's, it's a physical death. Further, there are various ways sin leading to death can be understood. It could be understood as, as spiritual death, but of course, as, as I told you, that's not possible. Spiritual death is an unregenerate state into which we are all born, but it's not one that we acquire by sin once we are regenerated. We can't revert back to this situation, this uh, condition of spiritual death. Uh, it could be moral death, a dead conscience, conscience. That's possible, but not probable in this context, because it speaks of a particular sin, not a gradual process leading to a deadening of our moral nerves. So when, when a person acquires a, a seared conscience, that takes place over a period of time. It's not a particular sin. Physical death, that's the most probable, since elsewhere in the Bible, physical death results from serious sin. And we saw that with Ananias and Sapphira and with the people who uh, partook of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So I want to leave you with this, a comparison of John's epistles. Uh, Today we looked at first, first John, the epistle of First John, and next time we'll look at Second and Third John. So let's compare those three epistles. Back in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." Well, in First John, Christ is the life. In Second John, Christ is the truth. And the third John, Christ is the way. So we see that John ties his writings together. So in, in the, his gospel, he records Jesus as saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And then he elaborates in his epistles on each of those, of those items, the, light, 
the life shortened away. So that is First John. We'll conclude with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you have not only saved us, but you have given us the means whereby our salvation can be assured, can be safeguarded, and we can be protected from falling away from the precious truth that you have given us. Our salvation does not depend on our ability to cling to you. It depends on the assurance that you will cling to us, that you will hold us in your care. For that we thank you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.